Book Dreams, a member of the Podglomerate Network and LitHub Radio. Hello, and welcome to Book Dreams, the podcast for everyone who loves books and has ever wondered about them. I'm Eve Yohalem, a children's book author. My books include The Truth According to Blue and Cast Off, The Strange Adventures of Petra de Winter and Brom Broen. And I'm Julie Sternberg, author of a number of children's books, including Like Pickle Juice on a Cookie and its sequels, and the Top Secret Diary of Celie Valentine series. In each episode of this podcast, we explore a book-related musing, something we've been wondering about. In this episode, we tackle rare books. Who collects them? Why? What's up with that whole world? So we got very lucky, and Nico Lowry agreed to talk to us. Nico Lowry has said he was born with a gavel in his hand. He comes from three generations of booksellers. His family owns Argosy Books in New York City, which is a bookstore for antiquarian and out-of-print items, and it specializes in modern first editions, art, photography, and antique maps, among many other things. Its stock fills a six-floor building in Midtown Manhattan and a large warehouse in Brooklyn. Uh, Julie, have you been to the store? I don't think I have. I can't believe it because it sounds like a wonderland. Okay, I've been to the store. Everyone who can go to Argosy should go to Argosy. It's a book lover's dream. Of course, it's closed at the moment, but that's something to look forward to when we're allowed out of the house again. First thing, I cannot wait. Ugh, so fantastic. Anyway, back to Nico. His family also founded Swan Galleries, which deals with rare works of art on paper. So things like books, posters, photographs, maps, atlases, that kind of stuff. Nico himself started at Swan as head of their vintage posters department, and he's now the president and chief auctioneer of Swan Galleries. Nico has also been a print and poster specialist on Antiques Roadshow for more than two decades. Oh my gosh. First of all, if you have not seen him on Antiques Roadshow. I know that there are clips on YouTube and he's just fabulous. And what a dresser that man is. Oh, he God. Can dress. Amazing. Amazing what, what, dresser. I was so excited about the interview, of course, for the substance, but also just to see what he would show up in. And he did not disappoint. Absolutely not. Let's just paint a little bit of a picture. Plaid suits, striped suits, three-piece suits. I mean, just, yes. it's just... Handlebar mustache, and he rocks it. He totally makes it's it work. It's phenomenal. And if you don't have a chance to see Antiques Roadshow, you can see Nico, as well as his mom, his aunts, and a bunch of other family members, because they're all interviewed in a new movie that's just started streaming, The Booksellers, which is all about the world of antiquarian booksellers. The movie sounds fantastic. Variety said in its review... Lovely and Wistful, a documentary for anyone who can still look at a book and see a dream, a magic teleportation device, an object that contains the world. Oh my gosh. Another thing to look forward to. And I don't even have to be free to leave the house. I can no. watch it tonight. So we started our interview by asking Nico about his family's remarkable history. The family association with rare books began in the early 1930s when my grandfather, Lewis Cohen, who was passionate about books, uh, had been collecting books, had been selling books out of his closet at home, decided that the closet wasn't big enough, uh, he needed more space, and he got a $500 loan from an uncle, and he opened up a store. I think we can all sympathize with lack of closet <laughs> space. Was this on your mom's side of the family or This your was dad's? my mother's father, and he proceeded to open a bookstore which still exists in New York, the Argosy Bookstore. 
where your mom and, and her two sisters, your aunts, are still working. That's just the tip of the iceberg. So my grandfather opened the store. It was originally on Book Row. I don't know if you know about Fourth Avenue, which used no. to be called Book Row. 1930s, 1940s, 1950s. The same way there's a diamond district, there used to be a rare book district. And it was Fourth Avenue below Union Square. And if you wanted to buy a rare book, or, or secondhand or rare, that's where you went. And it was a neighborhood where literally people would support themselves scouting from one bookstore to another. They'd go into shop A and they'd buy a book for a nickel. And they'd go into shop B and sell it for 12 cents. And then they'd go back and do it all over again. It's extraordinary to think that there was enough of a demand for rare books that there was an entire neighborhood well, devoted to Well, to be to fair, them. it was secondhand and rare. So secondhand the books that were being bought okay. were, were slightly used. They weren't necessarily all volumes of Copernicus from the from the 17th century. They were books that people would read, but they were collectibles. They would have been maybe first editions. And it was the era before the internet. It was the era before TV. There was a lot less to do, so there was a lot more interest in books. It makes sense. So my grandfather started the Argosy Bookstore, which has since moved up to 59th Street between Park Avenue and Lexington, where it still is. My grandfather then brought his wife, my grandmother, to work there. My grandmother then brought her sister to work there. I believe my grandfather had one of his sisters working as a bookkeeper. Then my grandparents had three children, my mother and her two sisters, who also proceeded to work at the bookstore and have done nothing else their entire lives but work in the bookstore. And now, currently, my brother works in the bookstore, so he's third generation there. Wow. Okay. Um, and occasionally, my cousin also works there, too, but he's not a lifer. And then in the late 1930s or early 1940, my grandfather bought a library of books that was so big he couldn't absorb it into the bookshop. I wouldn't say he was a hoarder, but for anybody out there who collects, they'll understand the passion of acquisition or acquiring and the sort of the irresistible urge to keep on getting more and more way past the point of critical mass. And my grandfather certainly had that. I have that. Going back to this particular collection, where did it come from? You, you said your grandfather purchased an enormous collection. That's a good question. I don't actually know what it was. Okay. The, the story that we've all been told, it was just so big and the store was too small. He couldn't sell it all, but he couldn't also resist buying it. So he bought it and then had to figure out what to do with it. And he's like, well, I can't absorb it into my shop. I know what I will do. I will grab my currently unemployed nephew, whose name is Benjamin Swan, and I will put him into the auction business, auctioning off all the excess books that I can't sell in the shop. That was in 1940, and that was the origin of Swan Galleries. Yes. My grandfather's nephew, Benjamin Swan, started it. For the first several years of the business, all they did was sell the books from this collection. And eventually, after years of doing that, they got up and running, and then people would bring them consignments, and they'd sell books on consignment, which is how an auction house works. Mm -hmm. I have a question, because my family had a family business and ended up with quite a lot of tension among the family members. So you don't have to out any tension in your family members, but to the extent that you've been able to avoid that, how do you think that you have managed that as a family, avoiding the conflict that I think it's often there. It's always there. And I, I'll yeah. speak for myself. I won't speak for my brother because I think he has a, he works with my mother and our two aunts. <laughs> mm -hmm. So I think it's a little more difficult. My father has since retired, so I don't work with him anymore, but I just worked with him. So I only had one person to deal mm -hmm. with. And I think from my point of view, we avoided conflict and we avoided that sort of tension simply because he put so much effort into making it happen that way. Mm. He did a very, 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 very good job. And not that it was tension-free and not that we didn't fight. There was a time when I came back from living in Europe I was 26 at the time, and I'd come back from living four years abroad, and I didn't have an apartment. Mm -hmm. So what do you do? You move in with your parents. Oh. So I'd wake up in the morning, 
my family and I would be in the kitchen. We'd be in our underwear. We'd be having coffee. Then we'd get dressed. We'd put on our jackets and ties. We'd go down to work. And then my father was the boss and he'd be bossing me. I was like, it was very weird. So there was certainly, there was ample room for there to be friction and it was ample room for it to be unpleasant. But we really made it work. I mean, there were some therapy sessions, actual therapy sessions, and we, we all worked hard on it because it was something that we loved. It was something we were passionate about. And it seemed worthwhile. Sometimes you have to swallow your pride, and sometimes you just have to shut up, and sometimes it bubbles over and you start screaming at each other. It, ha it happens. I think yeah. it's going to happen more in a family business between a father and a son than it's going to be between a boss and an employee. Right, because there can be office politics everywhere, and it's even worse, I think, when some of those little injustices are done to you by a, yeah. a family member. I'm trying to imagine how it would feel if your family went back generations and everybody worked together in a bookstore. You know, my family did own a family business. When I was oh, growing up. duh, of course. When, my, yes. when I was growing up, everyone in the family worked in a department store. Starting from the age of five, I was supposed to go in and my siblings were supposed to go in and we were supposed to work every Saturday morning. And by work, I mean, when we were very little, we would just pick up napkins off the floor or something and clean up the area before the customers came in. But pretty soon we were really supposed to be selling or we were supposed to be folding clothes. And all that I ever wanted to do and pretty much all that I ever did was hide in a corner of the book department and read. Uh. And so I was always feeling very inadequate because my sister was a rock star salesperson and my brothers were also quite great at working in the business and I was always just hiding and reading. So if my family had owned bookstores, let me tell you, I would have loved it. I would have just loved it. Nico's description of his apartment growing up, which sounded to me like just a fantasy. He was describing to us these gorgeous bookshelves. His mother collects 19th century Victorian bindings, and he described them as these gorgeous leather-bound books with ornate, tooled gold decorations on them. So just bookshelf after bookshelf with these gorgeous books and of all different types, and that just sounded fantastic. Uh, phenomenal. Yeah. So after wallowing in jealousy for a little while, Julie and I pulled ourselves together and we asked Nico, what kinds of people collect rare books? And equally important, do you have to be rich to do it? You don't have to be rich, but you can certainly throw all of your resources at it. Mm -hmm. I mean, book collecting goes back centuries and centuries and centuries. And there's stories of great book collectors in England in the 1600s who basically kept their family starving as they spent all their money on books. It's wonderful. And you see these sort of engravings of their houses with the books piled high, much like a modern day hoarder. But I don't think there's a particular type of person who collects books. I think people are drawn to collecting for a number of reasons. And if you ever have a chance, do not miss going to the New York Antiquarian Book Fair. Uh, which is in New York every March at the Park Avenue Armory up on 68th Street. It is just the most phenomenal event for bibliophiles and antiquarians, dealers from around the world. They all set up their booths and you get to see treasures and wonders and ephemera from all corners of the earth. Of course, you know, you come to a New York book fair as a dealer and every price gets jacked up 15, 20%. So for the average person, it may not be the best buying opportunity ever, but it's magnificent. Like so much fun. Like if you like books, if you think you like books, if you want to learn more about books, it's a must go. Sold. And then making the leap from collector to dealer, 
Well, I don't know if dealers always start as collectors, but how does that work? How does one become a rare book dealer? I'll just backtrack and say, I think if you go to the book fair, you will see all different types of book collectors. You'll Mm -hmm. see librarians who are book lovers. You'll see maybe people who in your mind fulfill that sort of stereotypical look of, you know, sort of little squirrely, like (laughs) rapidly moving eyes, dark fingers, and uh, all different types. You'll see people who collect design. You'll see people who collect bindings. You'll really get a feel for what the average collector is like. And from my experience, I would say it's mostly collectors who become dealers. There must be a learning process when you're a collector. You sort of start with one poster and then you go from there. Is there a typical, how do you learn to collect? So it's interesting. There's clearly a learning process, but Mm. I equate it more with falling in love. Mm. If you have a book that you love, you want to find out where it was bound, where it was printed, who made the paper, what similar things are there out there. And like falling in love, you'll know it when you experience it. So say I want to start collecting books of some sort. What is the process? You know, how do you determine the book's value? How do you know you're paying a fair price? How do you know how this copy compares to that copy? And what, which edition should I be looking for? And all those kinds of questions. Is Those are fabulous questions. I mean, they're a little technical. But to Julie's point, that's part of the learning process. And mm-hmm. when you collect, you're going to make mistakes. You overpay for some things. You buy the wrong edition. You get swindled, perhaps. Unfortunately, mm-hmm. it will happen or you buy a copy for $300 and then you find another one for $200 right after. And all these things can happen. And it's really just about exposure. Mm-hmm. The most interesting thing, though, is how collecting has changed in the internet age. There was a time when you're like, I have to find this rare book on coffee growers in southern Peru. Mm-hmm. And whenever you travel, you'd go into antiquarian bookstores. You would subscribe to the catalogs that the book dealers would put out. And you'd put all the feelers out there and you'd let people know, if you ever find a coffee-growing book, please let me know. I might be interested. And people would send you letters. Uh, <laughs> and now you can sit at your computer and you can type in coffee books, southern Peru, and you will get a number of different possibilities. Which was better? Which is better? I don't want to be this person who says that it used to be better, <laughs> but it really used to be yeah. better. Like the thrill of going to – I mean, right. now you go to a flea market – And everybody knows what they have because they can look it up online. So there's no secrets and it's really hard to uncover things. I think it used to be better. It feels to me like it's a hunt. And as writers, the hunt is the story. It changes the hunt. It's it's Mm -hmm. still about a hunt. And if you ask any serious collector, and by serious collector, I mean passionate collector. And by passionate collector, I mean crazy collector. If you ask ask any serious collector, tell me the story about where you got that. Point to anything. And they'll say, oh, let me tell you. And there's a story. And there's a story about the hunt. There's a story about the little store in Paris. There's a story about how they had to go somewhere in Berlin to ask somebody about this. And then everybody has a story. I just don't know what those stories are now. Oh, I went on Amazon and I found it. Uh, right. <laughs> yeah. So do you have a favorite story or a weirdest story or a favorite weird story? You know, what, what what comes to mind for you? About book collecting? About book collecting. I mean, my whole life is a weird story about book collecting. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the other great story about my grandfather was he had bought a, a house full of books and again, you can close your eyes and imagine what a house full of books looks like. Apparently, this was that house. I mean, this was, you know, piled floor to ceiling. This is Collier Brothers. Co- Collier Brothers, but just books, right? Not newspapers, not wire, not mm-hmm. old bicycles, not skateboards, books. And for some reason, either the house was being knocked down or there was some very concrete deadline by which the books had to be removed from the house. And there was no way that my grandfather could have gotten the books out. 
And again, I never questioned these stories as a child. And they sound, this one in particular, as I'm thinking about it now, I'm smiling because it sounds so goddamn apocryphal. But allegedly, and by all accounts, according to family lore, he drove a dump truck up under a window and started shoveling books out the window into the truck to clear it before the house was knocked down. Wow. And to me, I'm like, it doesn't have to be true. I want to believe it. And oh, again, yeah. it, it's, you know, it's, it, it's part of it. I believe it. I, yeah. Again, things were different. Things were better back then. Totally, totally yeah. believe it. Julie, is it just me or that's a picture book? Right. Oh, There's a picture book a in there. Great picture book. Right. Okay, Eve. Yes. Do you want to tell everyone your exciting dump truck related news? Well, it's not every day a person has exciting dump truck related news. <laughs> And and I'm really sorry to say that mine is not dump truck related because <laughs> I didn't end up using the dump truck. But I was so excited about Nico's description of the man who had so many books, he got trapped in his house and he couldn't get out, that I had to go home and write a picture book about it. Okay. And I don't think it was that he got trapped in his house. It's that there were so many books that they had to figure out a way to get them out. Yeah, that's not what I took from what Nico said. I instantly, I lost the dump truck and the man was in the house with the books. And the, Julie, it's my book. It's my idea. But it's your story. <laughs> this is I'm how sorry. books get created, right? Somebody says something and you're like, you decide and, and you just, yeah. Um, anyway, so yes. So I wrote my very first picture book. I have no idea what I'm doing. I've never written a picture book before, but God, I had a good time doing it. And now I'm editing it and we'll see what happens. I love that the, podcast inspired potentially your very first published picture book. We'll see. I have my fingers crossed. I feel like it could work. Thank you. And the other joyful thing that I want to talk about was the Antique Book Fair, the Antiquarian Book Fair, which I went to. It was probably my last crowded public outing before the quarantine. I think it was March 6th. And it was indeed packed with people in the armory on Park Avenue. And Julie, it was thrilling and so much fun. The Armory, it's, it's huge, but it's also a beautiful space, and the books themselves are beautiful. I mean, I rarely use words like splendor and wonder to describe things <laughs> I might do on an ordinary Sunday, but they are the right words here. Just amazing. What would be at a particular booth, for example? Okay, so anything you could possibly imagine and then a million things you never could have imagined. So for example, I went to one booth for a bookstore that's in Moscow in San Francisco, Globus Books. I'm probably mispronouncing that. They had a lot of books about Dada and surrealism, but they also had Allen Ginsberg's essays and a photo book about stratospheric flight. And then my favorite was a book called Poultry Photomontages. <laughs> so, <laughs> pictures of chickens. I mean, this is all in one booth, right? That's amazing. It was amazing. And then there was another booth called Libra Antiquas. Never took Latin. Don't know how to pronounce that. But they specialize in early books and manuscripts. They're in Chevy Chase, Maryland. And they had 17th century cookbooks. They had a 1556 reprint of a book written, of a book that had originally been written in 500 AD about prison literature. What? <laughs> Crazy, right? What do you mean prison literature in 500 AD? Prison literature in 500 AD reprinted in 1556. Can you flip through these books or are they not to be touched? Yes. Well, books this old are in glass cases, but all you have to do is say, hi, I'm interested in this. You know, can I take a look? And the dealers are so friendly and happy to take them out and look at them with you. And, you know, most of the time they're not even wearing gloves or anything. You're just holding or they're holding 
a 500-year-old book. There was also a first edition by Benjamin Franklin where he talks about his kite experiment. Whoa. Yes, that was in the same case as the 500 AD prison literature. I'm very sorry you missed the fair, but let's hope that we can do it next year. Yeah, fingers crossed. Um, Eve? Yes? I had no idea where you were going with your next question to Nico. (laughs) (laughs) Well, suspense. I could not wait to hear what what was going to happen next. Thank you for not saying you thought I was crazy. No, I loved it. So I'm always intrigued by secret worlds. For example, one of my personal long-held beliefs is that the more wholesome something appears on the outside, the filthier it is underneath. So, you know, I'm convinced <laughs> that behind the scenes at Disney World... Do certain politicians come to mind? It is. <laughs> <laughs> well, we won't go there, but I, it, maybe this is just me, but I'm convinced that at Disney World, it's just a den of iniquity behind the scenes. You know, the most outrageous things happening all the time. And so I'm curious to know, what's it like behind the scenes at Antiques Roadshow? Is it a den of iniquity? I'm trying to figure out what I can legally <laughs> tell you. Oh, it might be a den See, of I was right. I feel so validated. Uh, <laughs> I was really afraid you were going to say, no, no, it's as wholesome as it appears. And then my whole worldview would crumble at the table. And- uh, it's certainly not a den of iniquity. There are iniquitous aspects to it. Is that, mm-hmm. is that proper usage? There are iniquitous aspects, but it, it is hardly a den. All the appraisers who travel around the country to these different venues we basically all go drinking together after the show is done. So it's like the the, the equivalent of the 19th hole in golf. Mm-hmm. Okay, I have a quote about collecting, and I'm wondering if you'll let me know whether or not any of it resonates. Collectors are crazy people. <laughs> it's, it's, a, a it's a little bit more lyrical. It's from, <laughs> it's from Susan Sontag's The Volcano, Volcano Lover. Lover. Oh, you know this God. passage already. I, I, so just as a little background, as a collector... And as an auctioneer, I'm fascinated with the history of auctions, and I'm fascinated Mm. with the history of collecting. And my dream, and this actually is a great forum for me to share my dream. Please, yes. Because it's it's a book dreams. (laughs) (laughs) That's who we are. Oh, and this is a book. Okay, wow. This is such a nice little. This is this is my book dream, and this is this is real. Okay. Auctioneers can be euphemistic. This is real. I love collecting, and I love reading, and I love books. And I realize that there are books about everything. There are scant few stories about collecting. I started a project of trying to compile the best short stories about collecting that I could find. And again, not just about somebody who collects. Stories, if you're in love and you read a love poem, you say, oh my God, I get it. That love poem resonates with me. Mm -hmm. But if you're a collector, it's very hard to find a short story that resonates with that collecting Cord, whatever it is, and the Volcano Lover was one of them. It's a great, great book. All right. Well, let me read from yeah. Yeah, yeah. The pressure is on. Okay. As a child, he collected coins, then automata, then musical instruments. Collecting is a succession of desires. The true collector is in the grip not of what is collected, but of collecting. To collect is to rescue things, valuable things, from neglect, from oblivion or simply from the ignoble destiny of being in someone else's collection rather than one's own. But buying a whole collection instead of chasing down one's quarry piece by piece, it was not an elegant move. Collecting is also a sport, and its difficulty is part of what gives it honor and zest. Does that ring true to you? 
That rings true on a lot of different levels. First of all, right, if you want to collect books and you're like, oh, you know what, I want to collect James Bond books, which is a very popular form of collecting. First editions of Ian Fleming novels. Half the fun is going out, looking for the ones that are in best condition, looking for the ones that are priced right or that you think are priced right. If someone said to you, I have all of Ian Fleming's books right here, and for a million dollars, you can have them all. Well, there's no sport in that. There's no story. There's no sport. There's no fun. You know, I don't necessarily see it as saving things from the junk pile or resurrecting the past. I also don't specifically see collecting as a succession of things. Some people move on and some people just pick one thing and stay with it. The end of all of this is as a collector who's collecting all the James Bond books, for example, who spends a serious portion of their life focusing, collecting, tracking down, negotiating, researching, learning. What happens when you have them all? What happens when you get that last piece? One of the biggest questions that collectors face is, what do I do with my collection now? Mm. And things can change. I mean, sometimes couples collect together, and if somebody in the couple passes away, then there's the remaining spouse or the remaining partner is like, well, this was a joint pursuit. And as much as we loved it, and as much time as we spent doing it, I don't want to do it anymore. And does that bring a lot of sadness? Well, it keeps me in business. <laughs> so uh, it, it doesn't joy. bring sadness to you. <laughs> uh, you know, it helps me deal with clients because I know exactly what they're feeling. I consider us a company of collectors for collectors. Mm -hmm. And there's something to be said, not just of collecting James Bond novels, but being able to sit down with somebody else and being able to talk openly about this crazy minutia of publication dates, of errata, of all these different things. And it can be incredibly enjoyable. So, Eve, do you think sitting down with someone and discussing the minutia of books might be enjoyable? Well, gosh, Julie, I don't know. I mean, I'd have to think about it. I can't imagine doing something like that. Certainly not doing it on a regular basis, perhaps almost daily. <laughs> so, Julie, can you see yourself collecting rare books? You know... I think for a very long time in my life, I would have said no. I like my books new and shiny usually. But recently for my writing, actually, I've had trouble finding useful books except for rare and used books that have been phenomenal. So for one book, I was researching black eagles, and I wanted the eagles to move around in space and have mannerisms that were actually accurate. And it's very hard, it turns out, to find a book with that kind of information. But there was this monograph on Black Eagles that was a coffee table size book that was hundreds of pages. I have it, but I don't have it with me, unfortunately. And it had incredible detail. And this, similarly, with a book proposal that I'm writing now, I was trying to figure out what it was actually like in in some concentration camps, which I know is not a cheery topic, but I found a monograph on Theresienstadt that was written by someone who was imprisoned there. And it has actual daily menus. It has measurements of exactly the number of square feet, sorry, cubic feet that you would have if you were one of the people who was one of the inmates there in, in the camp. Just incredible, incredible detail that you wouldn't necessarily get in a book that was for a more general audience. So I can see now, I have a heightened appreciation for collecting books that aren't readily available. Yeah. 
And when you look at the books, when you touch the books, do you have different feelings about them than you do for some of your other books? I do. I have an incredible sense of wonder for the amount of effort and attention and care that went into the writing and collecting of information for this book, knowing that it would be useful to some, but probably not many. But it, like the passion of the person who's writing it is so clear. Yeah. You can really feel that it was a life's work. Mm -hmm. So rare, not in the sense of, you know, the first edition in Fleming, James Bond book, but rare in the sense that this was one individual and a small printing and meant for just a small number of people who would also be interested. So that very deep connection between you and the writer of this book. Yes, I feel privileged to own it. Right. I have to say, when I, I'm not a collector by nature, I love throwing things away. But when I was at the Antiquarian Book Fair, I felt like, do you remember the old man in Millions of Cats? Yeah. Where um, he goes out to get one kitten for his wife, and there are millions of cats there, and he ends up bringing them all home because each one is so beautiful and wonderful. After the fair, I totally get why someone would want to collect books. To me, the old ones especially, they feel like actual pieces of history, like a direct conduit from you to Shakespeare. Yeah. I was looking at a 17th century edition of Hamlet and I thought, who knows, he may have seen this book himself. <laughs> it's just amazing. Amazing. Yeah, amazing. And then half the fun is talking to the book dealers. That was really fun learning about the books that happened to catch my eye. For me, it wasn't about the hunt for the books. It was about the discovery mm. and the conversation. And then I actually went home and looked at some of the websites for the dealers and there was nothing like no spark, no joy. To Nico's point about maybe it used to be better, there's something about impersonal and the discussion and the unexpected that feels really, really fun. Great. Well, so we have that to look forward to, I think. And that's it for this episode of the Book Dreams podcast. Thanks so much for listening. Please subscribe if you haven't already. And if you like the podcast and think someone else would too, please, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast player. Be sure to let us know if there's a book-related topic you've wondered about, and we'll try looking into it in a future episode. You can reach us for that reason, or any other, at contact at bookdreamspodcast.com. We're also on Twitter at bookdreamspod, and on Instagram at bookdreamspodcast. Many, many thanks to our associate producer, Gianfranco Lentini, and to our theme music composer, Maya Polsky. You can find Eve at eveohallam.com and me at juliesternberg.com. And check out the podcast website. It's www.bookdreamspodcast.com. Until next time, happy book dreaming. Happy book dreaming. Love, come listen to Book Dreams with Julie and me.